ladies and gentlemen, may we ask your undivided attention for a startling screen experience. The amazing story of a woman swept into the whirlpool of ruthless hypnotism. Forget. There is nothing to remember. Just close your eyes and forget. Your soul can undress in front of me. What might a woman do when she's hypnotized? It would be better if he divorces me. He must, for his sake. He can't be married to a thief. Can a man make a woman do things she doesn't want to do? Relax. Let's go in here and you'll be safe from any unwifely impulses. You're a bit smug and rather stupid, Mr. Koval. Infatuated with him, jealous of him. He used it to wreck your mind and character. No. I've talked to him. I've been to his apartment. You were there. There's proof. You can't sit there and deny a love affair that's known to everyone, to me, to the police, to a hundred witnesses. I can get away if you do that. Otherwise, I shall have to shoot. Please believe what I'm saying, and don't rely on my sanity. <laughs> to another episode of the Film and Water Podcast, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and uh, we are in the middle of the month of November, and on Twitter, that is known among some film circles as Noirvember, uh, which is a, a tribute to uh, film noir as a genre. And uh, before we close out the month, I wanted to get in a couple of film noir titles. Uh, and in this case, we're here to talk about Otto Preminger's 1950 film noir, Whirlpool, starring Gene Tierney, Richard Conte, and Jose Ferrer. And for any of you that have been listening to my show for a while, you know that if we're talking about a Gene Tierney movie, there's only one person I can possibly have on to do it with me, and that is our pal, Dr. Ange. Hi, Ange. Hey, Rob. Thanks for inviting me. I'm always ready to talk about Gene Tierney uh, in any film, uh, including this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, the plot of this one is uh, a well-to-do woman named Anne Sutton, Gene Tierney, uh, is secretly suffering from kleptomania. and She is hypnotized in an effort to cure her condition by a shady hypnotherapist named Corvo. Great name. Played by Jose Ferrer. Soon afterwards, she is found at the scene of a murder of a patient of our psychiatrist husband, Richard Conti, with no memory of how she got there and seemingly no way to prove her innocence. Police Lieutenant James Colton, Charles Bickford, is sympathetic to Anne and tries to get to the bottom of the mystery. Uh, as I mentioned uh, previously, 
Uh, this is a film by Otto Preminger. This was Preminger's second film with Gene Tierney. He would go on to do two other films with her. He was clearly uh, quite simpatico uh, with, with the actress. Their previous film had been Laura, which was a huge, huge hit, uh, critically and financially, and the studio was uh, keen to sort of recreate that success. So that's why they paired up Otto Preminger and Gene Tierney. Um, like, let's just get right to it, Ange. Like, overall, what do you think of this movie? Um, you know, I'll say going in, um, the three main actors in this are uh, Gene Tierney, Richard Conti, and Jose Ferrer. And for me, Richard Conti will always be Barzini from yeah. The Godfather. <laughs> yes, exactly. And and he's a bad guy in The Godfather, and here he's kind of the husband, although he's not a great husband, to be honest with you. And then Jose Ferrer is always the hero lawyer in The Cane Mutiny, mm-hmm. where he's like, the best character in that movie for me. And here he plays a complete scumbag. So as I was watching the movie, I was kind of like, Oh, this guy who I always see as a good guy is a bad guy. And, um, but overall I would say this is an okay movie. Uh, I mean, Jean Tierney's in it. She's great. She's very, I would say fragile, uh, mm-hmm. in this movie. Um, whereas in, uh, you know, leave her to heaven and Laura and the razor's edge, she's just this like raw, emo- you know, sexual, dynamo or or really beautiful here she's almost like a china doll i would say um and then kind of seeing her you know waltz in and out of this creeps uh spell um was okay yeah it's funny you mentioned richard conti i i did a little reading about this movie uh after i watched it this is is the first time i had a chance to to see it actually and apparently otto preminger himself uh, thought that richard conti had been miscast and so he sort of regretted giving conti the role and yeah i i can't really ever see him as anything other than Bozzini as well. When he first comes into the movie, he's got like a kind of a boxy suit jacket on and a bow tie and he kind of looks like, like a mobbed up Jimmy Olsen. You know, I'm like, what is that? And he seems kind of indifferent to his wife, uh, Gene Tierney, which is, you know, to me, that's how you're going to be indifferent to Gene Tierney. But he seems kind of just disinterested. He almost, ta- like, he talks, talks about her in this kind of like dispassionate, like, almost like, how's your life going? You know, while he's off doing, he's got his patience and he's got his whole life. And clearly he's very successful because they live a very nice life, a very nice home. But he seems kind of just, you know, not terribly interested in, in her life, which, of course, gives Corvo kind of the room to, to, to worm his way into her life. And I mean, not not too long after the movie opens with her getting picked up in a department store for boosting a pin. Uh, she walks away with this pin and the the the. Uh, the, the department store's private detective stops her and arrests her, and Corvo uh, steps in and, and kind of gets her away with it, where he says, you know, uh, she's a kleptomaniac, and she's, she doesn't really control of her own emotions, and, you know, he's like, it's, you, she's a uh, upstanding member of society, and if you press charges, it's going to be just as big an embarrassment for you. He kind of uses a lot of, um, you know, not, not hypnotherapy, but kind of like mind tricks to sort of play games with the, 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 the store's private dick where even he realizes, oh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't do this. And then he gets her to pay for it. And he says he uses an excuse where he's like, she's got more than enough money. So why would she steal? Which is, you know, as we all know, is kind of nonsense. We know people that are rich steal all the time. Um, but, I mean, it's it, not too long after he sort of takes her under his wing, he's having dinner with her. And, like, I'm watching these scenes, and I'm like, where's the husband? Like, why is Richard Conti allowing this to even go on? Yeah, you know, you can see how throughout this movie, um, 
Tierney is just bored with this life of being this like socialite housewife. She wants something more. And, uh, you know, I won't say proto-feminism, but clearly it's like she just needs a different outlet than what she's doing. And as you say, he at one point says to her, um, she says to him, you know, I wish I was smart enough to talk to you and help you with your cases. And he looks at her and says, stay just as you are, healthy and adorable. Right, which is, you know, like almost as if you're, you know, a piece of decoration in this house and not my life partner. So that is, um, you know, I, I you never feel any sort of real connection between the two of them. And as you say, throughout this whole thing, Corvo says these, you know, lines that, you know, you're unhappy and miserable play acting as the serene, devoted wife. You know, I can free you from this torture chamber of being Mrs. Sutton. Um, he's playing on that, that she wants something more out of life that, that Conti isn't giving her. Yeah, I, it's, it's, it's funny the way Jose Ferrer uh, plays this role, because he really is a slimeball, and he's not even really tries to hide it. I mean, he's, he kind of like talks really slow, and he kind of, his lines sort of ooze out of him when he talks, and you're, you're kind of like, why would anybody fall for this? But as you're talking about, like, you know, Gene Tierney's a bored housewife. You know, she's a bauble. And she wants kind of a different life for herself. And so, you know, she's, I guess she's, uh, she's not attracted to Corvo sexually. I don't get that read on it. But she's in his thrall because, A, he's good at mind manipulation. And he's also paying attention to her. And we, we meet another woman, uh, Barbara, um, Barbara O'Neill, the actress playing a character named Teresa Randolph, who is a, almost as like, uh, warns uh, uh, Anne, you know, don't get too involved with him because, you know, he's, I, I fell for him at one point and, and you're like, wow, how does he work his way through polite society with all of this stuff? And I guess it's because he's slick, you know, he's got, he's got a smooth line and it's almost like, um, you, if you fall for it, you kind of regret that you, you know, you're falling for something, but you can't help it anyway. And there's this great moment where they have a party at, at someone else's house and they, Teresa Randolph and Ann Sutton are arguing about, Corvo, and another woman says, oh, you guys are arguing about Corvo. She has this great line. She says, battling over Corvo in my bedroom, it's the most dramatic thing that ever happened in it, which I was like, <laughs> that's a hell of a line to sneak into a movie in 1950. Yeah. Um, you can see that he probably preys on these women because, you know, that woman, Teresa, you know, ends up getting swindled out of $60,000. And I think it's they say at one point that she was probably, you know, intimately involved with him. Right. And um, and when Corvo first invites uh, Anne up to he's like, you know, oh, I only do my you know psychotherapy sessions in my apartment. Uh, and when you f- see him preparing for this first session, he's in a smoking jacket and he has the world's biggest brandy snifter that he's just like uh, <laughs> swirling. Right. And, he, and you just go, what a creep. Like, you know, clearly he's got something else on his mind. And then Gene Tierney, of course, is like, I'm not going to have this look indecorous in any way and and go up to your apartment that way. Anytime that we meet, we'll have to meet someplace public. And that, you know, clearly irritates him. And he knows that he can't get her to sort of take that last step of sort of being physical with him. You know, the first time he hypnotizes her again at that party, he says, you know, you know, he holds out his hand and says, put your hand in mine. And she can't do it. And it's a point they say in this throughout this movie, you know, you can't hypnotize somebody into doing something that's completely against what they normally would do. She won't cheat, you know, uh, you know, on her husband. And so he just decides that he's going to use her in a different way, you know, to sort of uh, implicate her in this murder. 
but he is very slimy. He has a great line at one point where he says, you know, I like women who cheat. You know, even the government hates monopolies, (laughs) (laughs) which is like, that's just so fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the the, the lengths he's willing to go to uh, to to, you know, build up an alibi for when, again, we have this uh, Teresa Randolph ends up murdered, which is how the sort of the whole film noir of this thing kicks into gear is where he actually has his gallbladder removed uh, basically just to provide himself with an alibi. So it's like so he's really, you know, he's playing a long game. You know, and he's willing to do to, to kind of like get out of this, and it's that whole uh, the the sequence with with uh, Teresa Randolph, who again it winds up um, being murdered. That is really what makes this a film noir. Is that whole angle? There's a great scene where he does hypnotize Anne, and she goes on this long sequence where she goes to steal some recordings of her husband's. Um, of, of his uh, psychoanal- psychoanalytic sessions. I don't know if it's the right term for it. Um, but I loved when we follow her into that chamber that he has, which is like almost like a, it's not a secret passage, but it's, it's like a wall safe. And it's like a giant record collection because everything has been put onto, f- on, onto phonograph records. I love that whole sequence because it's wordless through the whole thing. And it's all these really nice tracking shots. I think that's like a really terrific sequence. Yeah, you know, you don't realize that that's his uh, sessions uh, recorded on record until later on when they say it. Right. So I was like, what does he have, like a great jazz album, yeah. <laughs> you know? And then, and I was even, it's like a walk-in wall safe. I'm like, man, wouldn't it be awesome if, if I could put my comics. Yeah, I thought the same thing. I thought that, that's like a nerd's dream because it's got all these shelves and it's like everything's all perfectly easy. It's like, boy, I could put all my Justice Leagues here and my Batman's over here. And it's, it looks like it's probably climate controlled perhaps because it looks really high end. Yeah, but you're right. Yeah, they, when I first watched the that scene, they don't explain what she's doing. You're like, wait a minute. What is he, what has he got? Valuable Frank Sinatra 45s in there? Like what's going on? This is very, very strange. Yeah, and those records turn out to be the sessions he has with this woman, Teresa, because now, you know, Anne's husband is treating her where she says, you know, I was going to take Corvo to court to get $60,000 back that he swindled out of uh, me and he beat me up and he said he would kill me if I tried to do anything. So he needs those records to destroy them so that, you know, they won't be admissible as evidence. And so he has Gene Tierney, you know, steal those records, go to her house, hide them there, and then discover the dead body, and so now it looks like she's the killer. Right, and that's when the cops enter into it, and the the head police officer is somebody I mentioned earlier, uh, Charles Bickford, playing Lieutenant James Colton, and if you're any uh, fan of older movies, you may not know the name James Bickford, but you know the face. Uh, This is a guy that has been in a thousand great movies always a supporting actor he was in he played the um the head of the studio in a star was born sort of kindly guy that was always looking out for judy garland he was in the days of wine and roses the song of bernadette he was nominated for several oscars he had a really long career he had this great craggy face and this scraggly hair and he was again he's just and he's terrific in the role of lieutenant colton and before we get into his you know, his part of the movie, I have to mention this. I discovered this on his, this is his part of his IMDb profile. This is unbelievable, this guy. American character actor of gruff voice and appearance who was a fixture in Hollywood pictures from the earliest days of the talkies. The fifth of seven children, he was born in the first minute of 1891. He was a boisterous child and at nine was tried and acquitted for attempted murder in the shooting of a motorman who had run over his dog. 
He worked as a lumberjack and investment promoter and really ran his own pest extermination business. In his late teens, he gave up the business and traveled aimlessly about the country. In San Francisco, an attempt to romance a burlesque actress resulted in an offer to join her show as a performer. He spent the next dozen years touring the country in road companies that made a splash on Broadway and outside looking in. Cecil B. DeMille saw Bickford on the stage and offered him the lead in Dynamite, 1929, and off he went. You... People don't lead lives like this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. That you know, who better to be in a film noir than a guy who at nine tried to shoot someone? <laughs> yeah, you can kill my dog, Mister. I'll just shoot you. That's absolutely fantastic. But I mean, I really like. I mean, I like Charles Bickford. Every time I've seen Charles Bickford in a movie, I think he's terrific. But I, I really like him here because he is. Uh, you know, I think maybe a little atypical uh, in film noir because in, in a lot of I keep saying film noir, but in a lot of film noir, the cops uh, are either sort of, you know, the good guys or they are corrupt authority figures kind of always not giving our hero the break. Here, um, you know, Colton isn't really the hero, but he's not a bad guy either. He is sympathetic to Anne, and they suggest early on because he lost his wife. Colton is a widower. Uh, He lost his wife uh, at a fairly young age. He is sympathetic to Anne, and he kind of likes her. He he can't figure out how she's not guilty of these crimes, but he he's not trying to railroad her. And I actually think that's a it was a nice angle. Yeah, you know, Corvo has every possible piece of evidence set up to implicate her. She's found there with the dead body. It's her scarf around her neck. You know, he says that she killed her because she was in this intimate relationship with him. He has a martini glass with her thumbprint in his apartment. Everything is perfect. But as you say, it just keeps gnawing on Bickford's character that she can't have done it to the point that you actually see him like in the middle of the night wake up and say – we have to take her to the scene of the crime to see whether or not we can, you know, uh, have her remember, you know, how she got there and all of those things. So it's like you say, he's not just ready to, you know, throw the book at her. He's, you know, he has to be like a true cop and do his due diligence to, to, you know, make sure that he's, you know, convicting her of the crime that she deserves to be convicted for. Yeah. No, uh, what do we think about, or what do you think about, like, Gene Tierney in this movie? We were kind of dancing around, this is the reason we wanted to do this, is because I have an open <laughs> invitation to talk about Gene Tierney. What do you think of her in this movie? I mean, I, I, in terms of her performance, you mentioned that, yeah, she is like a house of fire in Razor's Edge, and certainly Leave Her to Heaven. But here she's she's much softer, she's much more fragile. I mean, part of like she's playing a woman that is suffering from mental illness. But what do you think of her performance? Um I think it's a solid performance. I mean, she at times really gets to emote like, you know, at one point, you know, she finally admits to her husband that, you know, her father denied her money. So she stole and it became something that, you know, she thought she was over. But when she again felt that she was, um, you know, restricted in her life by the life that she had with her husband, that um, that she resorted to that again to just get some sort of vicarious thrill. And she looks at him and says, you know, I was locked away in this characterization of your wife and you're going to run away from this problem like you always do. And finally you get to see, you know, a little bit of that fire in her. But for the most part, she's just, you know, she just looks incredulous the whole movie. Like, how did I end up here? You know, how did this happen to me? Um, So this performance doesn't grab me as much as, uh, even Laura, you know, right. where she really is a house of fire. This movie has even an, uh, an express callback to Laura because in Teresa Randolph's house, there is a giant painting 
of her and that there's scenes of, of Anne Sutton looking sort of forlornly at it. And so it's like this constant reminder, even though Teresa Randolph is dead, you, her picture is constantly looming. And so that I, I'm assuming that was, you know, expressly meant to recall Laura, because, of course, the portrait yeah. figures so prominently into that movie. Yeah. Now, I, I, I almost hate to, to bring this up because it's very sad, but it, I think it, it, it is part of the context of this movie is that Jean Tierney, um, in real life, suffered from mental illness. Uh, this was she, – she had what seemed like a charmed life in the beginning, but she was certainly uh, born you know, a winner of the genetic lottery – um, I mean, really, one of the great, one of the great screen beauties of all time, I and mean, one of the most beautiful women ever to appear in movies. But later on, she had kind of a rough life. And there's a there's one moment from her life that I, I read about in a in a book, and I found it here on IMDb again, and it's just tragic. And it's, it mentions it says, Tierney struggled for years with episodes of manic depression. In 1943, she gave birth to a daughter, Daria, who was born deaf and mentally disabled, the result of a fan breaking a rubella quarantine and infecting the pregnant tyranny while she volunteered at the Hollywood canteen. And that is, I don't know, the word tragic isn't big enough for what that is. I mean, here's Jean Tierney doing something, donating her time for the troops, and she ends up suffering the rest of her life because some GI decided to shake hands with her, even though he had rubella. Yeah, and I actually think it was a woman who did it, not a man. Really? Oh yeah, who was just a, a huge fan of Jean oh, Tierney and no. sort of snuck out oh. of the quarantine tent so that she could meet her, um, which is crazy. And I'll just say, you know, I feel obligated at this point to say, get vaccinated, right? That bar yeah. of rubella is in the MMR vaccine. And so, you know, that's why a lot of the, we don't see as much of this as we used to. Um, so do you think yeah. that do you think that her again, it's that's not we're not qualified to make this. But I mean, it, by 1950, she was already displaying some personal problem do you i wonder how much of that calls into is dialed into this performance I mean, maybe she's playing someone a little unsteady yeah i'm sure that she had you know that she could draw upon you know her personal life to sort of uh you know act this role where this this woman is suffering right this is not you know, she has, you know, both the kleptomania, but she clearly has, you know, depression, I would say, you know, that she's just locked away um, in this life where she has just no outlet at all. Do you, uh, you know, you, you mentioned, we mentioned off air about you know, some of the uh, the medicine is a little dodgy in this movie. Like what did you, I mean, you're the expert, obviously. What, what you know, what kind of stuff in here is it would not be recommended nowadays? Well, I would say, you know, um, the uh, early on, we hear that um, the policeman's wife died from gallbladder surgery. Right. And so, you know, you hear that, you know, and you'll, he goes, you know, that gallbladder surgery, you know, it's dicey stuff, um, which was clearly foreshadowing for what ends up happening to Corvo. Nowadays, gallbladder surgery, right, they do it laparoscopically. Oftentimes, that's what like the intern in the surgery residency will do. It's relatively easy. So that's wow. changed. Uh, um, so that's sort of interesting, but what I, um, what I really found fascinating was again, Corvo is in the hospital after having had his gallbladder out and he, um, has a fever and, and is, you know, um, weakened after, um, the, the initial surgery and, uh, Richard Conti's character comes in. Remember Richard Conti is a private practice psychiatrist 
and he walks into this room and he picks up the chart and he looks to the surgeon and says, he's spiking a fever. You know, that's a sign of infection. And if that ever happened in the hospital, the surgeon would look at that guy and say, you know, pardon my English, uh, you know, what a douchebag, right? <laughs> like, you know, uh, yeah, buddy, I, I know that fever post-op means that there's probably an infection. Why don't you go back to, you know, the, your psychiatrist, private crack, like, you know? So, so I mean, like, as soon as that happened, I'm like, as I'm taking notes, I'm like, what a douchebag. I just, you know, it's just, it's just too funny. And, of course, the surgeon is, you know, obviously is, like, trying to maintain some profession. He's like, yes, I know that, and I'm going to give him a dose of penicillin and just kind of slowly nods his head. So, uh, so I thought that that was pretty funny. And then, of course, at the, you know, um, in the end, I mean, we haven't even talked about the ending of the movie yet. Um, uh, can I talk about it now? Sure, I mean, go right ahead. Yeah, this... y- you know, uh, 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 Jose Ferrar self-hypnotizes himself so that <laughs> even though he's, you know, post-op day one from this really dicey surgery back then, is able to, you know, uh, drive out to Teresa's house to try to find those records to destroy them. And he's bleeding like a sieve and ultimately ends up sort of bleeding out and dying, right? Like the villain dies its death by, you know, gallbladder removal, uh, in essence, um, uh, which I think is also a little bit crazy because it's a relatively bloodless, at least nowadays, it's a relatively bloodless procedure. I, I did enjoy, I mean, again, I know nothing about this stuff. Uh, the only medicine I know is from what I learned on MASH. But, like, you know, the fact that we, like, uh, Corvo, when he's laying in the hospital, like, he's not hooked up to anything. Like, he's just laying there. I mean, he might as well be in a hotel room, like, for all the medicine he's getting. And not to get too off track and to bring it back to MASH, but your, your comment about the whole uh, he's got an infection because he has a fever. Like, there's, a, there's an episode of MASH where, uh, for whatever reason, Hawkeye and Trapper have to distract frank burns and so they hand him a case that they pretend that they don't understand just to see if they can kind of get him to to focus on that and he looks at the chart and he says well he's got a fever he's like uh, he's clearly got an infection and 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 he says it like he's really smart and hawkeye kind of rolls his eyes and then trapper says he says he gets right to the heart of the clinical picture (laughs) and i even though i don't know anything about medicine I could tell from the context that that was clearly an easy diagnosis that Frank Burns just made, and then that both, both the other two were sort of playing playing up to his ego. So yeah, th- that moment where Richard Conti comes in and sort of like almost takes charge. First of all, again, he's in a black uh, suit with a bow tie. He looks like a band singer, like he just came from a nightclub. You know, like what are you, like, what are you doing? And it, you know, it's like okay, everybody, I'm going to take charge. You're like, what are you talking about, dude? You don't work here. Yeah, and and it's like you say, even in that, uh, you know, uh, Conti, uh, uh, sorry, um, Jose Ferrar, when you're talking about the care he receives, he tells the nurse, I don't want to be disturbed for the rest of the night. She goes, okay, and puts a do not disturb sign on the (laughs) hospital. It's like that, like I I tell you nowadays, it's like every three to four hours, somebody's going in there and checking on you to make sure everything's okay. (laughs) And then he hobbles out of of the hospital, um, which looks like it's a deserted bus terminal, right? (laughs) It's like, you know, like the lights are off and he kind of strolls out. So it was kind of, it's interesting. I I always enjoy seeing those sort of scenes um, in these old movies to try to put it into context <laughs> you could probably get a really interesting lecture out of like you know the old medicine and movies about what the stuff they used to yeah. do back then you know it's funny um, my kids who occasionally have to sort of um you know sit through these movies that i watch on tcm i tell them there's no such thing as an innocent cough in old movies if oh right coughing, sure if they're coughing they're dead from pneumonia 
within 15 minutes. And, yeah. uh, and so now they actually say that line to me. If we're watching a movie and somebody coughs, they go, you know, there's no such thing as an innocent cough. I, I know. So uh, Speaking of speaking of like little touches, uh, you I couldn't and I, I didn't notice this uh, on my own. I saw it in, in a review, but in all the scenes in the police station, there are constantly calendars hanging in the background, and they're all from mortuaries. <laughs> I thought that's a nice film noir touch that all the free calendars the cops get are all from like an undertaker or a cemetery. Like it seems like uh, you know the the local undertakers are like, well, these guys are kind of my business. You know, I mean, they're always finding dead bodies, so why not just send them a free calendar? There's one scene where Richard Conti comes in, and the calendar in the background is like the size of a window. Like, why would anybody get a calendar printed that big? You don't need it. It's huge. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's I, I yeah, I'm kind of winding back to where in the beginning. I think this is a good movie, but not a great one. And it is partly because I think Richard Conte is kind of miscast. I don't buy him and Gene Tierney as a couple. Um, I think Jose Ferrer, who, as you mentioned, in the came Muni, I love that movie. I think he's terrific in that movie. He's he's a little over the top here. Um, I think part. It's a little. I, I hate to see movies are dated because I don't think anything's really dated. I mean, you you can look back and you know put yourself in the in the era in which it was made. But it's it's interesting the way Corvo, because he's a hypnotist, kind of moves through this society as if he is a magician. And I guess back then in the late forties and early fifties, that whole angle was so fresh and new that it seemed like a magic trick. I think nowadays, I mean, most of us don't know a hypnotist, but that's you know, hypnotherapy is is not considered, you know, like some weird thing, right? I mean, that's, it's, am I wrong about that? Or is that still considered like kind of really out, out there? Uh, you know, I would say that the idea that he's able to tell her post-hypnotically, go into the safe, get those records, drive here, you'll have no memory. I think that people don't think that that's probably real. But I do think that sort of, you know, using those techniques to sort of, um, to uncover stuff, I think is is you know it's it's not anything that I encounter in what I what I do, but I do think that people do find value in it. Right? Yeah. I mean, right. I mean, Corvo's almost like a Batman villain at the to the level to which he's able to do it. I mean, he would yeah. practically suiting up Gene Tierney as henchman number one and henchman number two, and whatever, getting him to do these things. But the way that Corvo cuts through these rich people's lives. It actually reminded me a little bit of um, Nightmare Alley, which was a movie that Martin Gray and I covered uh, a bunch of episodes ago, which features Tyrone Power as uh, this sort of mentalist who winds his way into upper crust society. And the, everyone there is bored and rich. And they kind of like this guy because he's like, Ooh, he's got all these magical powers. And of course, I, you know, Tyrone power and Gene Tierney would be famous together in, in the razor's edge. But it, it reminded me of that where it's kind of has that, you know, these are, these are the idle rich and they sort of regard in this, in this case, Corvo as again, he's like a magician almost, you know, I mean, he just like, they're just so impressed that he's able to do these crazy things. Yeah, I mean, at the first at that party that he's at, he like goes up to some guy and he goes, "You're clearly, you know, a Sagittarius. You suffer from thyroid problems, right? You you cut your wrists once, and and you're like, boy, this guy's like Sherlock Holmes that he can read somebody that well. And then later on, he goes like, no, I'm, you know, I'm basically I've talked to his wife, right? And, like did all of that stuff before, so I could just sort of play on it. Um, and so you can see he's kind of, in some ways, he's a con man that he's able to, you know 
you know, as you say, move throughout these circles that I think are clearly above him. Yeah. But he does have some skills, right? He's able to, you know, you know, help Jean Tierney fall asleep, right? She's like, I have horrible insomnia. And he basically gets her to sleep nine hours a night and she's more refreshed the next day. And, and that's very helpful to her. And so he kind of could be above board if he wanted to. But, you know, that probably isn't going to get him into that posh appointment that he was at, right? And so he abuses what he can do. There's a, yeah, it's funny you mentioned the sleep. There's a line about that where he says, do you, do you take anything for it? And she says, no, that doesn't put me to sleep. It just makes me anxious. And that's kind of funny because I just, just – like, I don't know, just yesterday I listened to a, uh, an episode of um, Fresh Air. And they had a, a guy on who was a sleep expert and he was talking about sleeping and sedatives. And he mentioned that sedatives don't actually put you to sleep. They just sort of like – almost like cover you in a kind of like – you know, they just slow your body down, but you're not actually sleeping. I never knew that. I always thought a sedative literally puts you to sleep, but it doesn't do that. It sort of like papers over your insomnia kind of, which is why they're not sort of like a permanent fix. So when Jean Tierney had that line, and when I watched the movie over again today, she had that line. I was like, oh, okay, okay. that's a thing. It's like the sedatives don't, they're not going to work for her. Yeah, and that scene where he hypnotizes her at the party and tries to and tells her, I think, is probably the the best done scene from like a film point of view because as he's putting her under, slowly the you know the background noise of the party fades away, mm-hmm. and the lighting on her face becomes like a little bit more darker, and his face becomes like a little bit blurry, and so you actually get the sense of like, oh, this is what it would be like to you know get put under by him, um, and so that scene I thought was actually was done you know, exceedingly well to sort of give that, um, that feel for what he's able to do. Yeah. It's the most sort of further out in terms of the style. Like if you watch the trailer, which the audio is the opening part of the show, the, it makes it seem like he's almost like a Svengali. Like he's like, yeah. you know, doing like the, the, the hand things with the, you know, and then there's none of that. He's a lot more, he's a lot more sort of subtle here. Uh, except, except of course, when he's walking out of, of the hospital uh, in his med- in his gown, slowly bleeding to death, of course. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it is. It's the the ending is a bit kind of absurd. He gets his trench coat and he's got his gun and he's waiting there for everybody and you know he's he's trying desperately to to fight them off, uh, or, you know, and get out of town and destroy all the records and stuff. But you know, as you mentioned, he's slowly bleeding to death, and so it's kind of a like of a low key ending. I mean, it's not like there's a big shootout where Charles Bickford guns the guy down or Richard Conti knocks him out. It's he just he just bleeds out. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, he thinks he's just going to go there, get those records, and leave. And the only reason he encounters them is because, again, you know, cosmic karma. This is when the cop woke up, and even though it's the middle of the night, he's going to take Tierney to the house to see if he can dredge up these memories. And so it's just, oh my gosh, we all happen to be here at the same time. It's a little bit too lucky, I would say. Um, uh, And then, of course, yeah, Ferrar has to, you know, hold up and try to hold them off, and that's when I think everything sort of unravels, literally. The stitches probably unravel as he squeezes out. <laughs> it's kind of, uh, yeah. And, I mean, I love that he's, half the time into the ending, he's holding the gun, and he's kind of has it off cocked to the side. Clearly, he's so weak that he can barely do it, and it's, it's I, I think it's only because Richard Conte, again, is kind of, again, it's sort of like passive and disinterested a little bit in seeming what's going on. Like, I mean, he, he, you know, I mean, it's his wife and he loves her, but he's almost kind of, the way Conti looks at Jean Tierney almost is like she's a problem to be solved as opposed to, 
you know, like that's his wife and he really loves her. He he almost just is like, I got to just deal with this so I can go back to my life because she's having a lot of problems. Yeah, look, you know, we've talked about it before. I'd try to swim that whole lake for her if she told me right. to, you know? <laughs> so, so, so you say like, it's like you say he's almost wooden around her. Yeah. There's like no emotion at all. And you go, dude, like, what do you think? And so. Yeah. What can, have you been able to put your finger on it? I mean, what it is about Jean Tier? I mean, obviously she is just unbelievably beautiful. But is there something about her and her films or her persona that just really is sort of works for you? Uh, you know, I as slinky is the wrong word, but there's just something about you know how she carries herself and mm-hmm. how she moves. Um, and I'll say that um, the Razor's Edge and Laura is probably where it is um, the most hypnotic, I guess, an appropriate word for what we're talking about. When she is in the black evening gown in The Razor's Edge where she's almost trying to convince Tyrone Power not to leave, mm-hmm. um, uh, so they're at that cocktail party, um, just the way she moves is um, is like, you know, a black panther work mm-hmm. <laughs> walking through the jungle, you know what I mean? And, and she, her face is obviously uh, mesmerizing. I'm just going to keep going with that. <laughs> <laughs> with these uh, adjectives, and and so I just think it all works for me. A couple of years ago, I think I was doing like my little nerd thing where I was like casting a 1940s Batman movie, and I was like Catwoman, Gene Tierney. I didn't even consider anyone else. I was like Gene Tierney yeah. would have to be Catwoman. That's the end of this discussion. Yeah, I mean, she's just gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, now later on, Richard Conti would star in a movie called The Blue Gardenia, which has a very similar plot but it replaces the psychoanalyst, psychoanalysis angle with a more straightforward procedural storyline. But, you know, this was back when, you know, movies, once they left the theater, they were gone forever. So they, you know, you could remake things over and over again. And, uh, you know, over time, I mean, I guess one of the, I, I said earlier, I didn't like to use the word data, but I guess one of the little more dated elements is, is the idea of, of, of psychoanalysis is that these people that go to Richard Conti are all like deeply troubled. And it's like, again, they're like a problem to be fixed. She has a line where she refers to his patients as those sick people and their wretched, wretched complexes, which is a pretty brutal way to refer to people that are, you know, need, need psychoanalysis. Yeah. We don't have that attitude now. We don't, you know, these people are not, you know, deeply off in trouble. These are people that just need a little bit of help. I wouldn't go to Richard Conti, frankly, as, as a psychologist, if, if I had a choice. But the, the movie handles them at a kind of like arm's length of like, well, these are really weird people. Yeah. You know, tell me, because I wrote down that line, too, that she said about how she calls them quacks. And she says, you know, to him, you must hate them. Uh, yeah. you know, and I, and for me, I wondered if that was self-loathing on her part, right? She knows that she's troubled. She could just as easily be on that couch. And so maybe she's like transferring either self-loathing or fear that he would hate her if she ever fessed up because she's kept it all under wraps. Um, uh, so I, uh, I, um, you know, I wrote that line down and said, oh, interesting that she's saying it, knowing what she's going through. Um, the one thing, uh, the other thing I'll say about uh, psychoanalysis is that um, sometimes I worry in these movies that people think like, oh, and there'll be a breakthrough and then you're cured. And, you know, obviously that's not something that we necessarily think right now. People can get better, but um, it's usually something that they have to deal with. So I always think of like Spellbound by Alfred Hitchcock, mm-hmm. right, where um, Gregory Peck is like, now I remember I saw him shooting from the mountaintop uh, and uh, it's because I killed my brother accidentally growing up. And they're like, he'll be fine now. <laughs> and I go, 
No, I don't know if it's actually that way. Like, he probably will still have to do a little bit more work. <laughs> Just because you discover the source of your problem doesn't mean the problem goes away. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was, uh, this was kind of the... Uh, near the, not so much the end of Jean Tierney's career, but kind of the, the later portion of it. She was, she was got, she got top billing. I mean, she was still the biggest star, uh, but she was, you know, she had done a bunch of uh, film noir movies and she, again, she was a, her auto premature clearly liked working with her because they, they ended up doing four films together. And yeah, I think this is a good movie, not a great movie. It's a nice film noir. I'm always happy to, to see a movie that I'm not familiar with. And for noir member, it's a good, it's a good pick. And if you're interested, anybody uh, listening just wants to see it, it is on YouTube for free. You could just watch the whole movie on YouTube. So it don't even cost you anything to check it out. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a fun, interesting little movie. So Whirlpool. So, uh, Ange, thank you so much for, for doing this and coming on to talk about Gene Tierney again. I know I didn't have to twist your arm too much to do that. Yeah, there are plenty more movies we can talk about if you want. <laughs> well, speaking of which, since we still have another week left in November, which is, again, Noir-vember, uh, Ange is going to come back next week. We're going to do a double feature, a Gene Tierney double feature, which is four great words put together. Uh, next week, we are going to talk about another film noir with Gene Tierney, Where the Sidewalk Ends, starring her and Dana Andrews, and directed, once again, by Otto Preminger. So that is going to be awesome. We're going to do a double feature. Ange is going to be back. We're talking more and more about Jean Tierney. We're going to find more adverbs and adjectives in which to describe her. Uh, but before next week, Ange, where can people find you on the internet? Um, before I say all that, Rob, I just want us at the end of the next episode, we have to rank the four Jean Tierney Otto Preminger movies in order that we like them. Okay? Can that we do is that? utterly reasonable. All right. You can find me at Twitter mostly at Dr. Ange 70. And then for the comic book side of things, um, I run a Supergirl blog called Comic Box Commentary, and I'm also one of the Legion of Super Bloggers. And thankfully, you guys invite me on here every so often so I can chat. I'm always happy to have you. And like I said, I, I appreciate Gene Tierney much like you. I won't, I won't get in the way, you know, of your love for Jean Tierney, but I really do love her as well. I mean, her performance in The Razor's Edge is terrific, and as I've said before, that's one of, it's my favorite book of all time, and when I read that book and I read it over and over again, I picture her now. Like, that's, you know, when I hear the, the I read the dialogue, I'm like, oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's pretty much Jean Tierney. She nailed it. So, uh, well, again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, as always, if you want to listen to back episodes of the show, Come to fireandwaterpodcast.com, and we're always talking movies and stuff over on Twitter, which is at Film and Water Pod. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Go out and see some more film noir while, uh, while November is still running, and we will see you all next week for Where the Sidewalk Ends. Formal statement given by Ann Sutton, resident of Westwood, California, witnessed by Lieutenant James Colton, Sergeant Robert Jeffries, and Dr. Peter DeVal, psychiatrist, the Los Angeles Police Station, City Hall, 11.20 p.m., June 3rd, 1949. Question. What is your name, please? Answer, Mrs. William Sutton. Question. Where do you live? Answer, 725 Willow Drive. Question. What time did you leave your house this evening? Answer, I don't remember. Question. Now, will you tell us why you went to Mrs. Teresa Randolph's house? Answer, I don't know. Now, Mrs. Sutton, will you please tell us how did you get into the house? That is the home of Mrs. Randolph. Answer, I don't remember. Question, do you know that Mrs. Randolph was strangled to death between the hours of 9 and 10 o'clock tonight? Answer, yes, I know. Do you admit, Mrs. Sutton, that the scarf found around Mrs. Randolph's neck and now displayed before you is yours? Answer, yes, it is my scarf.
Question. This pen with the clasp broken was found on the floor near the murdered body. Did you drop it while you were strangling Teresa Randolph? Answer, I don't know. Question. Had you any reason for hating Mrs. Randolph? Answer, yes. That's not true. I didn't hate her. But you said you did. I heard you. I couldn't have. I don't remember going there, I tell you. I couldn't have done it. I couldn't. Unless I'm crazy. Unless I'm crazy.